So it's a bunch of essentially high schoolers figuring out life in a post-apocalyptic environment. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Never fear change. Life is too short for fear. Chase what is desired. I can do this all day. Would you mind identifying what you are? We're the best friend squad. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Welcome to the rodeo. Ladies and gentlemen, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. This is the way. I have spoken. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show, reading Rangers-ish. In a world where Shakespeare is from America. Uh, also a world in which we're told that uh, England was part of the American Empire. So, fun factos. I mean, <laughs> we're not that dissimilar. No, not that much. I'm Sean. I'm Jen. And today we are doing a thing that Jen and I have never done for this show. We are talking about a book together. Yeah, together without having the author present. It's very weird. Yeah, they're very weird. We have interviewed this author before. Wait, wait, wait. We have done this once before, technically. Okay, Model Land does not count. Because <laughs> <laughs> A, both of us did not finish that shit. Not happening. And also, we read that one because we wanted to make fun of it. I will also note we tried to do it for one other book that uh, we realized how racist that book was. And we're like, you know, there's like... Only one joke we can tell, and we cannot make a podcast out of it because the rest of this book is just offensive. Yeah, exactly. So we we eliminated that. Now we're just reading seriously, and we're going to take this book seriously, which is unlike us in general, but, you know, we're going to try it out. Yeah, and uh, we are talking specifically about a book called The Wild Shore by Kim Stanley Robinson from the 80s. It is from his Three California series, Jen brought this up because they did a, did or are doing a re-release of this in a new collection. It's a collection called The Three Californias, where they're all bundled together. I don't remember who did it, but I got a review copy and I was like, hey, I have this. And Sean was like, hey, I have this too. So we decided we would we would talk about it. I would also like to mention that The Wild Shore itself was Kim Stanley Robinson's debut novel. Yep which makes it an interesting perspective or look back at Kim Stanley Robinson's sort of career trajectory. He started with a post-apocalypse. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's interesting to think about his work because the work that he's most celebrated for is his Mars trilogy, Red Mars, Green and Blue Mars. And that series also does a similar thing in the sense that each book is a little, it deals with a different political aspect of its central premise this kind of similarly, except that it's three different realities for California, possible futures. And so it's interesting that that's something that he's sort of been doing in a lot of different ways throughout his career. And then he just was like, fuck it, I'm just gonna like write a book about like fucking cavemen, and it'll be 3000 pages long, and you're gonna read it. And we did. So <laughs> it wasn't actually about cavemen, but you get the idea. My favorite by him is actually Years of Rice and Salt. So Robinson's a really interesting writer because he obviously is well-deserved for the praise he's received, and yet his name sort of flits in and out of the genre community. Like, he'll release a book and everyone's talking about it, and then, like, he disappears for a few years. And then he comes back, and then he disappears again. <laughs> he's sort of like the ghost that doesn't stop haunting you. He just comes back from vacation. 
I mean, he has a very long career, and he writes big, interesting books. He really does. That not everybody agrees on at any given time. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. some of us will be like, oh, that was brilliant. And then the other half of us will be like, wow, that was really long and talked a lot <laughs> for no particular reason. I think when I look at his career, I haven't read everything that Robinson's released, but I've read quite a lot of it. And I would say that Robinson at his worst is still really interesting. And Robinson at his best is like just mind-blowingly amazing. And that is a distinction very few authors can ever acquire in any career where at their worst, they're still very interesting. He's basically at his worst, he's the 1970s film world, which is a bunch of stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's still very interesting and compelling. And clearly someone was on drugs. And then at his best, he's basically like, I don't know, the when were movies good? <laughs> um, my analogy fell apart, but you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, I get you. So why don't we start ourselves off with a description of this book? All right, I will give you my description. Yep. So very important. So this book set in 2047. Without giving too much away to start, I will note that some sort of either nuclear war or mass destruction has led to the people of California, which is our focal point, to live in fairly small communities that rely on farming and live fairly rural, sort of traditional, non-electric lives. Their lives are difficult, they're hard, but they go day by day and everything seems to kind of go fine. We learn a little bit later on that most likely it was some sort of nuclear war and America got the bad end of the deal and everybody's sort of scraping along to survive. We also learn that potentially the Japanese are monitoring a quarantine zone over the at least the western coast of the United States and are trying to halt the technological development of the Americans. There are other things that they may also be up to that we'll probably get to. The story follows a young man by the name of Hank Fletcher and his I guess you could say his teen years of uh, over the course of a year dealing with, you know, the kind of everyday things that you would imagine he'd deal with until they meet some people from uh, what is, I guess, reconstituted San Diego who have a plan to fight the Japanese and bring back America from the ancient times of, I guess, like 50 years prior to that. And as teenagers often do, they have very poor impulse control. And so they sort of get involved in it and things go complicated and sideways. And that's without telling you really a whole lot. A lot of the story that is not sort of plot specific are, you know, the sort of everyday lives of teenagers. For example, Hank learning how to read from the apparently very ancient Tom, who is eccentric and tells what we all outside of the book recognize as deliberate baloney falsehoods. <laughs> and it, it deals like, you know, with romance and like love and, you know, farming and fishing and, you know, family strife. It deals with all of these things. I mean, it's basically I would describe this as like, little. it's Little House on the Prairie, but not as racist. Well, it's a different kind of racist. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's not it's not written by one of the worst people ever. Right. Yeah, but but that's kind of how I describe it is it's that kind of 
rural lifestyle where a lot of the story is really just about like their everyday lives and then other stories kind of get pulled in around it and really our journey i think as readers is less about trying to follow the plot of like what's going on with the san diegans it's more about like how do we make sense of this world because for them what makes sense of them does not compute with what we recognize as reality and so we're sort of doing interpretation as we kind of go through and it is very much a tension between the main character, Hank, and his best friend, Steve. Fair. And and in that, the tension between them, we learn the tension that California is having and Californians are having and the San Diegans are having versus the Onofrens, which is the town that they live in, former San Onofre State Beach, essentially. The tension between both the past and the present and then the present and where that could take them in the future. So you have this very agrarian sort of lifestyle, non-technological lifestyle that is occurring, but you also have the inability to move into a different kind of future because as they feel, they are being both monitored and crushed by the Japanese, quote unquote. And there's a tension between that. Like, why why aren't we being allowed to to reclaim our past by having a technological future, by even talking to each other and things like that? So I think what is couched in a pretty standard, I mean, in some ways, a pretty standard sort of like teen coming of age adventure story in some aspects is all of these sort of bigger picture items of American identity, Californian identity agrarian versus technology identity all of those sorts of things so it's a really yes it's just a teen adventure story but no no it isn't there's a lot a lot going on right yeah because there's just a lot there's a lot going on i mean i think it's interesting that you talk about like the conflicts because there are tons of those throughout the book and some of them are more serious than others so like steve nicolin and his father john Mm-hmm. have huge conflicts. And that's something I think many people may be able to relate to of like having very oh, strange relationships with your father. Uh, and, you know, we get a sense of what that relationship really means for John towards the end of the novel, because we get for a brief moment, a sort of little glimpse into his heart. And then he clams up real quick, which tells you a lot about what kind of man he is. Whereas Steve, I think, wears a lot of his emotions on his sleeve. And so it's like these yeah. two opposites, like just two two massive storms pushing up against each other, uh, who maybe probably still love each other just fine, but like just can't stand <laughs> one another at all. And that creates all kinds of other conflicts. So like Steve and Catherine, you know, Catherine is effectively Steve's girlfriend. There's conflicts there. There's conflicts between the town because when they do come back from San Diego and they, they discover the San Diegans exist and that they have access to a train and, and Tom and Hank actually go down south and meet the mayor, Danford, and all of these people. Uh, and they get this opportunity of like, well, maybe we'll fight back. And the town doesn't all agree, right? It's split. Almost down the middle, young people very much on the side of doing something, but the older generations are very much against it. And that creates a conflict there. And there's tons of these like small and much more serious conflicts that exist throughout the thing. There's also some weird stuff with Melissa and Ad, uh, which I, I, they're just weird. I don't know what their deal is. 
Well, now I mean, we'll we'll get into that because I think they're they're just a part of sort of the outer world, kind of infringing on the space of Nofre. I know, but they burned down their nice house. There's a reason for that, like very specifically. <laughs> I know there's a reason, but it was nice, Jen. I, it was a nice house. It Come was a very on. nice house. It was also, in some ways, one of the more technological houses. Like it's in a sense, like it's constantly getting hit by electricity but it's grounded right because it's it's built around an old radio tower yeah it's really interesting but um i do want to say something you know because i kind of was like eh, racism so this is kind of a a content warning for folks that this does have racism towards asian people and i'm i'm saying it broadly as asian people because it's kind of an interesting background to what happened to America and nobody knows. So they just kind of blame all quote unquote Orientals. And I hate even saying that word, but it's throughout this book. So people should be aware of that. And they actually don't even know the difference between Chinese and Japanese in this, which is really problematic because especially considering where this book is taking place, just south of Orange County, races in general are completely erased from the context of this book, except for the fact that obviously these people apparently don't have any context with Asian people and specifically hate the Japanese and hate the Chinese and hate all quote unquote O words. And that's a problem given that Southern California in the 1980s definitely had a large Asian population and a large black population. This is camp- this is right next to Camp Pendleton and Orange County and totally erased from the book. You do have presumably Latinx people in the book and appropriately for California, uh, a lot of terminology is both Spanish and English. Uh, not a lot, but some and the foods are both Spanish and English. But that erasing of black people and Asian people, except in the context of as enemies, is definitely problematic. It's something that's not explained either. At all. Like it's yeah. it's basically ignored completely by the people in this book. And color is literally never mentioned except for Asian features. It's hard to read, especially given that So the history of this post-apocalyptic space, we should say, is that at some point in 1984, I guess it was 1984, right? Tom was 18, which we find out later when it happens. And he's 81, I think? I I haven't done the math, but... 63 years. It's been 63 years? Yeah. So 63 years earlier, prior to this story actually taking place, bombs went off. Whether the bombs came from the sky or were smuggled in and set off is unclear. We actually don't really know anything at all, nor is it ever really explained what happened for this apocalypse in the United States to take place. Well, to be fair, uh, what we do get is from Tom, who is the oldest gentleman. And at the start of the book, he's 105. Yeah, something like that, 104, 105. Spoiler warning, but if you've not read the book, uh, at the end, Tom, while he is very ill with pneumonia, 
uh, reveals that he's not as old as he says he is, and that a lot of what he said was, uh, you know, exaggerated for most of it. Some things just outright <laughs> lies, and yeah. including his age, right? He turned out he was 18 when the bombs went off, and that mm-hmm. isn't doesn't leave enough time for him to be 105. And this is important because at the towards the end as well, right? Tom gives us his, I would say, fairly chopped up account of what happens, which is he was on some sort of trip for his school, and the bombs went off. And when he got started going back in towards civilization, he like discovered that things had fallen apart. And it wasn't just that like stuff was on fire and that you know, communities were destroyed. It was like people were starting to like cut themselves up. They were killing one another. And so Tom has experienced some pretty horrific stuff that pretty much everybody else in uh, Onofre have not because they, they've been born after the fact. And so that's really an important detail because really the only connection we have in is Tom's memory. And Tom is, I would argue, very unreliable in terms of the truthiness of what he says. But I think part of that is connected to the other thematic that's throughout this, which is the importance of writing down your history, your stories, because that is what Hank gets pushed by Tom to do very aggressively. And this book ends up being Hank's narrative of his life as an effort to explain what had happened. Uh, And we get other aspects throughout the book of other books that have been written in the aftertimes. So all of this is really important that we just don't, we don't know. And I think that's really important that the book does not tell us and will not provide that answer because in reality, you would not necessarily have the answers in this situation. Mm -mm. So yeah, like whatever happened was extreme enough to completely isolate the United States. And then since then, I think the one thing that we can say that they know is that there are people ostensibly patrolling their borders. But we don't even know necessarily who those people are. They call them later that's like, it's the Japanese. And some people are like, yeah, it's totally the Japanese. But at other points, it's the Chinese. And maybe Mexico is patrolling the southern border. And maybe Canada is... (laughs) patrolling the east coast but none of these things are ever confirmed in any way shape or form i would say that it's even hard to argue for sure that it's japanese people that are patrolling the west coast well because why would uh, the only person we have to to know that any of that might be confirmed is that hank is captured at one point in the book right i don't think he the guy ever says anything i don't recall him saying anything no all we have is hank's understanding of what asian peoples are right Uh, and so he assumes they're japanese he hears their language and he 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 describes it kind of as like jabbering of those kinds of things which i suppose if you've never been exposed to a language that isn't based in the same roots as english would be very alien to you because japanese is is not like English at all in terms of the the sound, the way that it's constructed, the sounds. Right. He actually specifically says that he has never heard a foreign language ever before. Well, that's a lie because he lives in California. <laughs> right. And I'm like, uh, have you never heard Spanish spoken? Did we kill all Latinx people? Or or maybe maybe it's that he doesn't consider Spanish to be a foreign language. Right. And I can't remember what word he used specifically if he said foreign or another language, period. But regardless, it is a kind of telling thing. Like, 
how totally destroyed the United States became that we don't even have access to other languages. And then further information we get from two locations. One is San Diego, who say they're in contact with other people, but that's never actually confirmed. At all. At all. And then the last place is a book that was supposedly written by somebody who traveled around the world and then wrote it all down. But we have no further information. We don't know if that person is real. This could all be a a complete fictional tale. In fact, the elders believe that it is a fictional tale. And we have reason to think that if it's not totally fictional, certainly huge aspects of it are. Right, exactly. And from that, we actually learned that potentially it was the Russians who bombed us. And at another point, it was the South Africans. So you don't know what happened. And that's actually one of the best parts, I think, of this book is that whatever happened to the United States happened. And now it is the job of the characters within this book and Californians, because apparently California, Southern California specifically, we don't even hear anything about Northern California. They're all alive. They're just a big fence. (laughs) Right, exactly. We finally got our fence up. They're keeping out all the racist whiteies. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Something like that. But that's what we have to go off of is it's now time to move forward. But we don't have enough of a history to really teach ourselves where that should be. All we have is Tom. And Tom is grossly unreliable. Right. About the only thing reliable about him is that we we are pretty well convinced that he knows how how to read and can teach them to read and write. Because we right. have the book, and we're reading it, and so we we have to assume that what we're reading is real language. <laughs> that is the one reality. That is the one thing that we know for certain. Tom can read and write. However, he has taken such huge liberties with even prior books that have been written. Yeah. That it is hard to tell, even at the very end, what is truth and what is not. Except that Tom tells us that the reason for his lies was he was trying to teach the children something about who we were and that we shouldn't want that. Except he screwed up royally <laughs> in the process. Yeah. And he admits that. He he admits that, like, I was trying to teach you guys that, that what we had before these bombs went off maybe wasn't the best thing ever. And I was trying to make you learn from that and appreciate what you have now. But unfortunately, he really just hasn't done that at all, which is why so many of the young people in this town only see the stories of the before as things that one would want to reclaim. And I think that's where the biggest tension is in this, is that idea of reclamation of a past versus an acceptance of what is now and what can be and should be in the future. Well, and it, it especially for the young people, because uh, right. almost all of the adults in this, with the exception of the San Diegans, are just qu- sort of like, w- we know what we're doing, we know what we have, we can kind of build on that, but we're not necessarily going somewhere, right? That there's there's no sort of like linear path that, that John Nicolin is following, right? For him, it's, I have a job to do, I know what has, has led us to this point, and I'm going to keep fishing and making sure that we can eat and keeping my family safe and keeping this going, but the right. kids are like, well, but like, I don't, like Steve especially, right? It's like, I don't almost want to like catch fish all f- my goddamn life. I want to do other shit. And once he realizes there might be more past this, this 
singular sort of lifestyle, he like latches onto it like like a leech. Like he just desperately wants it. And it is, in fact, I would argue, partly Tom's fault and partly partly the San Diegans' fault because the San Diegans are MAGA. I don't know if they're MAGA because it's hard. They're it's really they literally difficult. say make America great again. They don't literally say that phrase. No, they literally say no, that they phrase. Don't. I oh, swear to God. Find I it in the book. It. Give me a page and everything. I tweeted it because I was like, what? There's no makeup. There's can't be. Here's the reference. This is Dan Forth, the mayor of San Diego. The San Diegans' goal, presumably, they reopen a rail line, which is how they're able to get to Onofre, which is, you know, about 50 miles, I think, north of San Diego. They're able to get there pretty quickly, and they want to go further into Orange County because that is where, supposedly, the Japanese are landing tourists to basically, like, check out the wrecked California. Ha ha, look at the the people without their technology or something. But there's, like, a whole smuggling sort of... They get past the patrols so that they can land on California and visit and take pictures and then leave. So there's like this whole like Japanese tourist racism thing going on there, too. Supposedly, because we we never actually see it again. No, so much of what's in this book is like rumors (laughs) of what's happening. And then when we actually see things, we don't actually get confirmation of what's going on. None (laughs) whatsoever. Unclear pictures still. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Okay. So Danforth has decided that they're going to send armed people up to Nor- Orange County. They need to get through Onofre to do this to kill these tourists. And so they're trying to recruit the Onofrens. And by recruit, I mean threaten the Onofrens into cooperation. But when they Tom and Hank go visit, this is what Danforth says. And it's pages 103 to 104. Oh, shit. There it is. There it is. <laughs> okay. Page 104. Danforth is speaking. Quote, passionately, he said, to make America great again, to make it what it was before the war, the best nation on earth. That's our goal. He pointed a finger through the shadows at Tom. We'd be back to that already if we had retaliated against the Russians. So on and so forth. Well, and there's bits about the former president of man by the name of President Elliot, who's a traitor. (laughs) He's a traitor and a coward refuse to defend us but yes so there is your make america great again quote told you so i literally screamed when that happened because i was like oh my goodness the san diegan mayor is basically a maggot but no 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 no. okay so we gotta we gotta (laughs) pause our pause our nuts for a hot second (laughs) maga did not exist before this just to be totally clear sort of okay so maga as we know it right now did not exist, right? In its association with Trump and its association with with the alt-right and so on and so forth. No, but there was a president at that time who was using it. Ronald Reagan used Let's Make America Great Again in his 1980 presidential campaign, which almost certainly Kim Stanley Robinson knew Knew about. and was referencing here. <laughs> I also just want to point out that Bill Clinton also use this slogan. Yes, uh, Bill Clinton has said it. There's been a long history of people in the United States saying, make America great again. This is not just, obviously, singular to Trump and the alt-right. However, people who say, make America great again, 
99 times out of 100 are referencing some false past. Yeah, well, that's true. And so that's why I say that the San Diegans under Danforth are essentially maggots, not specifically to the maggots we know now and love. (laughs) 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 She's like like that. Uh, But also, it is of the same breed, I would argue. It is. Uh, it's curious because the context in which it, this phrasing appears in this book is one in which. So, like, you're you're right that they're talking about a false past, but they're also like talking about a false past that isn't actually really gone. Uh, because a lot of the times, what they're complaining about is like we want to go back to like the way things were when everything was prosperous, and it's like, well, but like going back to 1950 doesn't like you're just shifting where the prosperousness right. is. Instead of actually correcting the problem that's making you not prosperous, which is taxation and the fact that rich people have too much money. But uh, don't say that too loud, Jen, because they'll scream. But in this book, like, they're wanting to go back to literally before the entire country was, like, decimated by neutron bombs or supposedly neutron bombs. And so there's a sense where it's like, I kind of get it because, like, they literally have lost literally everything. Versus people who are saying like, oh my god, like I've lost so much. And you'll watch these people running around and going, well, but like none of the things that you think are causing the the fact that you haven't been more economically prosperous are the things that you're going to like ruin. Like those aren't the things that you need to fix. The things you need to fix are you're not fixing. You're making those worse. And I think that actually applies in this situation because if you look at Mayor Danforth as a figure within the San Diego community, this man has been mayor for 14 years, A. B, he's clearly living a life of luxury. He really is. Whereas that's not necessarily true of all the San Diegans. It's definitely not true of everybody in California. And yet here he is lording it up and he's got like, dances he he's like this very bizarre jazz age kind of criminal figure he's a slightly more eloquent trump yeah exactly like it's interesting to see that parallel especially given like right now and given the fact that within the story as i say people of color are completely erased from it except for asian people possibly japanese who are the enemy And given the context of the 1980s, where Japan was putting a lot of money into the United States. It's part of the car boom. Right. It's the cyberpunk version of Yellow Fever, right? Where Japan is going to take over the United States, but this time they're going to do it economically. And I think that's a part of the reason for them being the enemy within the Gold Coast. I don't think Kim Stanley Robinson was free of that in any way, shape, or form. However, he seems to be arguing that, like, well, that's not, we don't actually know that's what's happening, except that we are still framing them as the enemy, you know? Yeah, so if we take at face value any of the things that we're told by the supposed Japanese ship captain that uh, Hank actually meets then we're led to assume that while the Japanese did not have anything to do directly with the attack on the United States, that was presumably the Russians, which would make sense because the 80s, again, great for the context. The Japanese are, in order to appease the Russians, working with the UN in order to basically quarantine the western side of the United States and keep 
I guess, keep the United States from growing again. And we're just not clear exactly what those rules are because we're just never told. No. And then there's something about so that the United States doesn't get carved up by the rest of the world. Because yeah. presumably we were ripe for com- conquering at that point. Well, makes sense. There's not a lot of resistance left. Right. So basically they've created this giant American reservation. <laughs> that, I mean, that's essentially what's happened, right? Yeah. Is they the American people have been decimated and now they have been allowed to still exist, but they have to exist within certain certain conditions. Yeah. Right. And so, like, there's even a moment when I think we have to accept that this did happen, where we we see these lights come out of the sky, and then we're told that they've destroyed the the rails, and we have to assume that that's probably correct. That that's that is what's happening. There is like a stifling of technological advancement going on. Right. And so, Danforth is. Danforth was probably like this before, because people don't... Well, he wasn't around before, but his dad was. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, like, I don't think you become... Because, like, you can see San Onofre or Onofre as, as, like, a nice counter to that, which is, like, Danforth and his group that really support him, they're all very much gung-ho. They're sort of, like, Wild West types. Like, he's, like, the... He's basically the custer of the book. Uh, Oh, Let's talk about that scene. Sorry, I have like that that moment when he's sitting like he they wake up the next morning and he's sitting there doing like skeet shooting with real <laughs> plates, of course. Yeah, of course. Because they have so much ammo that they can do that in San Diego. And that reminds me so much, as sadly as it is, of that scene in Wild Wild West, <laughs> which the evil general as played by Kenneth Branagh, like, pulls out his giant railgun to show it off, right? Like, it is not <laughs> dissimilar. It's not, and and I think it's important that that is the character of Denver, and that's part of the reason yeah. why a lot of the adults don't trust him and why Tom definitely doesn't, because he is he is a man who took the lessons of this life and went the wrong direction, Yeah, right? He became much more aggressive, and this leads him to make Decisions that are actually quite disastrous, which we see later in the book when Danforth convinces Steve mostly, and Steve then drags Hank and uh, Mando uh, and a couple of other people along, right, and convinces them to help uh, help them find out where the landings are. And then those kids, you know, enamored with the idea that we're going to take the fight to the Japanese, basically force themselves along with it. And it turns out to be an absolute massacre. Yeah. And the mayor dies, Danforth dies, among other people are dead. It's a basically like Custer's like last stand. Like that's like the American example of hubris. The American walking into a situation to fight an enemy, quote unquote, and believing themselves to be superior in every way, and finding out that they're completely outgunned and they don't know what they're talking about, and have have completely total lack of respect for the people that they theoretically are fighting against even more like they've put these kids in harm's way very specifically yeah and mando dies mando dies and that's that is a huge thing to happen to this small town of anofre you know as it is it people die from simple things like pneumonia and while this is all happening tom himself at 81 or 105 is (laughs) has contracted pneumonia because of a basically ill-fated trip to san diego 
and him still protecting the young because this is a post-apocalyptic, but more so, like, it's just a less knowledgeable agrarian society. They do have a doctor, but that doctor was taught by a doctor, not like in a school, but just like by his dad, because that's all they have. And they don't even have books necessarily to reference more stuff about being a doctor. They just, it's spoken knowledge, which granted right. is is useful to an extent. But as we learn over the course of this book, it's not reliable in any way, shape, or form. So people are killed consistently. Hank's mother died because of pneumonia. Uh, he goes to the graveyard at the end and... There's multiple people who have died of pneumonia, also cancer, presumably because of repercussions of, of getting neutron bombs exploded all over the United States and other things like that, right? But things are killing off these people and this type of system, the young are incredibly important, not just as like keeping the town alive, you know, over time, but as labor to keep the town alive on a daily basis, you know, to do the work. All of these yeah. things are important. And it's a small community, so they're all yeah. vibrant and important members of that community. So Mando dying is huge. And because of it, the town also loses Steve, who realizes that he can never go back because it's because of some of his choices that this happened. Yeah, and he's also convinced that because of what happened, we find out that this isn't what it ends up happening. It becomes a different threat. But he's he's concerned that the scavengers who theoretically are working with the Japanese to help with the people coming in believe that it was Onofre that's responsible for what happened and that they're going right. to come uh, to get revenge, which is not good because, as you're noting, right, Onofre, a very small community – Every lost body is bad news bears compared to San Diego, which they can afford to lose some bodies because they have so much more in terms of resource. I mean, this is like a lot about resources between the two yeah. and the sort of hubris and power differentials that that creates. Because I think of the adults, even though they don't, they sort of kind of say this, but they sort of point out like we aren't in a, we're not, this isn't like a position where we can really negotiate. We can tell them no. And if we want them to leave us alone and at the end of the novel, their only solution is we blow up the tracks. So it's just harder for them to get here. But they recognize, the adults do, like we don't have the power to really have much say here. And that's not good because they could just come in and take. And we know throughout the book, right, that John Nicolans, like they rely on fishing so much. Uh, and they rely on their crops. And when the crops don't work well, they, they can survive. But if they lose everything, that's it. They all they just starve and die. Right, they do. And I think that's ultimately what Hank realizes is that and we get it basically like two chapters waxing poetic about how utopic their life really is in some sense. It's about the waves, Jen. He loves them waves. <laughs> right, exactly. He's having his Zen Buddhism moment, kind of, like the American strain of it, uh, that I was reading about this, where it's 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 him doing the thing where he's like thinking about the stuff that he takes for granted. Like the fact that the way how the waves work, like he never really stops to like just look at it and really ponder it. And that's what he's giving us is he's giving us this different way of looking at things that are seemingly mundane. 
Right, exactly. And we we see the town coming together to help in flooding. We see plans for fishing, uh well specifically catching uh, a whale because that would be that would be so much to trade for and it would really be beneficial to the community. You know, we see the differences between the men who who fish and the women who handle the crops and the bread and more praise for Catherine, who is apparently like in charge of 95% of the town uh, (laughs) because she's in charge of, of the farms and the bread, the kitchen, and also is being taught how to be a doctor. She's a badass. (laughs) Basically, Catherine's a baller. I'm just saying. Best character for a town. But yeah, like we basically, we literally get two chapters of poetry about living this simpler lifestyle, which, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about that completely because again, this book has erased people of color from that lifestyle. So it is kind of like that false utopia, false sense of a different past than the ones that the San Diegans were going after. Because, like, in reality, we've never really had a perfect agrarian past in the United States, but people like to talk about it as a video. Well, people like to talk about a lot of shit. People like to talk <laughs> about a lot of shit. Let's just be honest. Americans are really good at making up shit about our own past. Yeah, exactly. But the reality is that it, in the context of this story... It makes sense. But there's a really interesting facet here, too, in that they have a, a Johnny Appleseed story. They do. Yeah. Um, Which I'm not sure how I feel about that, because it's basically a guy who, instead of planting apple trees, uh, just planted pine, I think, all up and down the coast of California and returned it to a natural state of being. It's like a, a weird, like, eco-critical folktale. Yeah! Because it, and this is what Tom, right? This is the story Tom tells. Right? Yes, and one, it, of, it's, one of many. Instead of Johnny Appleseed, it's like Johnny Pine Tree, and he's just, like, running around with all these Johnny different Pinecone? seeds of trees. Yeah. Johnny Pinecone or whatever, yeah. And he's just planting different trees, and, like, this is another thing where it's, like, it's Tom... Failing at his so-called mission to convince them that we we don't need to go back to those times, because what what we learn about Tom is that he does have a natural affinity towards the wilderness, because some of the stuff he was doing when he was younger was wilderness stuff, right? He was he was not just living in the city; he was also doing things outside of the city, uh, which is why he didn't die in the city to begin with. And so I think it's interesting that that he offers this folk tale. Yet he's also like, he's talking about this as though this is a, a thing I want you to like feel comfortable with the world that you live in now, in part because Johnny Pinecone has come in and, and planted all your trees for you. But he's also like, in a weird way, recognizing that this is also, you know, bringing back some of the natural landscape we had before the war and just more of it because it's more untamed now and it's sort of doing its own thing. I just don't know because it's, it's cute. Right. And it's like a it's an American thing where we tell we have our own folk myths and folk stories that I think are really helpful in the sense that it can create some sort of connection to the place that we're on. But it's also weird. (laughs) That one specifically, like the the idea of the Johnny Appleseed story, obviously, is that he basically created space for us to go west and there was food there already. Right. 
Gotta love American mythology. It's all, there's always something, something wrong with it somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Johnny Pinecone, though, again, those, the trees that he planted made the space livable. Yeah, but it's not, Tom's mission, even though he sucks at his mission, he, it's, he doesn't, he doesn't want to, like, this is the thing, is what's shocking for Hank, right? It's when they meet the San Diegans and Tom goes down because he's the oldest one. And I guess he represents the Inofrins. He realizes pretty clearly what Danforth is about and wants nothing to do with it. So when he comes back, Hank is shocked. It's like, why, why aren't you on the side of joining the San Diegans to fight the evil Japanese who are trying to take keep us from developing? And while he ne- doesn't tell explicitly, we can kind of figure out by the context of everything else he says, which is that he doesn't want to go back to that, that there's actually... Like, we need to be better stewards of our lives than living in boxes, as he tells with the one story of his own self where he meets a version of himself that lived a completely different life. Love that story. Mm. It was fucking great. It is fucking great, but complicated? It's super complicated. and But that's like Tom. I mean, Tom is this enormously complicated old fart. And at the beginning, you just think he's this kooky old man who just, he just happens to be like the only old fart who knows how to read. Ooh! Ooh, it just occurred to me. Yeah. So that story is just another space where those tensions exist, right? Right. Very specifically within the person of Tom himself, which is, you know, one way of life is living in boxes and one way of life is, is living around the world. And those two things do not agree with each other until the moment that the world is destroyed. Right. Well, because they don't, it doesn't matter anymore. Well, to an extent, but I think there's also kind of a point of these two things need to coexist. Like our our connection to the earth has to coexist with our connection to a sense of stability. Yeah. Because one of those things, like his his wild self that goes everywhere and doesn't live in boxes and basically lives on the street and hitchhikes and whatnot, right? That's the sort of wild, unstable, like yearning to be young and free portion of him. Whereas the other guy is the, I have a routine, and the routine works, and I'm just going to keep on doing it, even if I'm living in boxes, you know? Right. And my whole life is in boxes. And, like, partway through the story, those two things reject each other. Like, literally reject each other. Right. He basically accuses the one that wanders the world of being, like, a dirty hippie. And the other guy accuses him of being, you know, a boring stiff. And then they meet right before the bombs go off for the last time. And in that moment, they recombine. So I, I guess that's essentially what's happening there. And what Tom has been arguing through the entire thing. And essentially what the ultimate thesis of this is, is that there does have to be a connection between those two things. That you cannot even survive long term in a completely wild sort of unorganized, looking for food from one minute to the next because you haven't set down any roots and setting down roots, right? That it's important to set down those roots, but you have to have the context of those roots cannot damage the world that you live in. And they're both important aspects to moving into the future. It is so hippie. (laughs) <laughs> well, it wouldn't surprise me because I'm pretty sure Kim Stanley Robinson is like a a like Santa Cruz liberal. Oh, he 100 yeah. percent is. Like he's and he's a declared democratic socialist. Yeah, I mean he's, so he's like straight the up Marxist. Food and all that. Yeah. Is, yeah, but I mean that is 
so much of this, it's not necessarily Hank's bag, but it's all of the other stuff that he's trying to like make sense of. Because this book is really just like Hank trying to make sense of the life he's lived up to this point uh, as a as a teenager, right? And and figuring out what he wants to do with his future. Right. What will my future be? We get a sense of that. And, and I, I like that the f- version he offers is let's build a radio and then let's try to talk to the world instead of uh, the complete opposite of the sa- of yeah. Danforth, right? With Danforth is like, no, no, we're going to go and kill the world, basically. I mean, the, the implication of Danforth is like, you're going to do the very thing that is what's keeping you in quarantine, which is you're going to go murder a bunch of people indiscriminately mm-hmm. without any consideration, right? Because mm-hmm. what he's upset about is like, there are Japanese tourists coming secretly and and I guess looking at buildings and taking pictures. And that is enough for him to want to have them exterminated. Because we're not animals in a zoo or something like that. Right, which I get, right? We're not animals yeah, in a zoo. And I can understand where the anger's coming from if you believe fervently that these people, or at least historically, they're responsible for keeping you from developing as a people. I could totally understand the anger yeah. and the hatred. However, yeah. the response to that is... Like Danforth doesn't seem to understand scale, right? He no. he is a guy who seems to think that you can just if you just punch bullies in the face, you like that old thing, right? It's like you know the bullies always mean to you until you finally turn around and punch him in the face. But in those stories, it's one bully, and Danforth is the bully, but he's also in a situation where he's being oppressed. But he's being oppressed by a system far vaster than what he can understand. Whereas Hank, I think, by the end realizes. You can't fight this thing with strength. That's the physical strength is not the thing that's going to survive. You need to save that for regular survival, right? You need to be able to fish. You need to be able to farm. You need to be able to do all of these things. And they all are very physically strong because they run around and climb cliffs all day long because they, they're teenagers. But the thing he realizes is if we just get this radio, maybe we can be different. We could have a more persuasive power of saying, we're still here, we're living, our lives are not like your lives. Right. We still exist, you have not gotten rid of us, but we're not the same Americans we used to be. At least that's how I interpret what Hank is calling for. Yeah, well, at at first he's calling for the way that he wants to get the radio parts, though, is like to attack, not like... Like invade Catalina. Catalina. Yeah. Right. By the way, Catalina... Island off of the coast of California is supposedly like controlled by the Japanese and they have like a city and whatnot. So it's like a staging zone, basically. He thinks that if they like attack, they'll invade the island and take it over. He doesn't specify what kind of attacking would occur. But the idea is like you take it over and then you'd be able to show you'd hold it for a little while and the world would be like, well, that can't be ignored. Because you can't right. just like steal an island from the Japanese and that doesn't end up in the news. <laughs> right. And and to an extent, you know, it's like I definitely argue that to have a revolution, you know, there is going to be damage because when people are angry enough, people will get killed. Right. But unfortunately, the way that the San Diegans and, you know, even Hank tries to approach it at first is we're just going to go to war with them and get ourselves killed, essentially. But we're going to kill a few of them, and that's all that matters. But there's no real broader sense of revolution in the act. It's just a sense of we're just going to murder them. Because that's literally what the San Diegans want to do, is they want to, like, ambush random tourists on a beach and kill them. Hank is only slightly elevated because he wants to attack a military establishment. So, yay, Hank, I guess. But in the end, he's reminded 
that will result in deaths like Mando's. Yep. And that's when he switches to the idea that, oh, then let's get ourselves a radio so that they know that we're here. And I think that was an important lesson for him to learn because he hadn't really quite learned that lesson yet. Despite everything that has happened in the book, it took someone finally saying it to him for him to be like, oh, I'm still thinking in a confrontational fashion when what I need to be thinking is working with the communities that I live within, because that's essentially what their plan is now, is to work with the scavengers, work with other communities that they're in contact with to get the parts for the radio, which they can then fix, and then they can talk to the world. And I think that was ultimately part of that lesson of fusing the two things, resolving that tension between the two lifestyles. Right. Yeah, I agree. This book's good, y'all. It is really good. I cried a lot. Wow, you cried. I, I'm not, I, I had a crying week this week. I don't know why. That's interesting. Those last couple of chapters, specifically when he has this confrontation with Tom, and then there's the resolution with John, who recognizes his own fault in the in Steve leaving and Mando dying. Yeah. And just Mando's death. Him exploring and thinking about that tension and thinking about his life as it exists or the the life that he ultimately decides that he wants to have. All of that was really beautifully put. And and I can't even I wish I remembered exactly what set me off because I don't. (laughs) But there was something that was said and I just was like, (gasps) (laughs) And then I read Riot Baby, which everybody should read because, uh, yeah, I cried through that entire book. So, you know. It's good. So Kim Stanley Robinson, like, set me on this path of I'm just going to cry for the next two books. Yeah, I didn't cry. Um, I just, there was just a lot to think about with this book. Uh, You know, I mean, you could approach this from so many different angles of, of what you might look at. Whether it's like the political or if you're looking at its treatment of like literature and writing, uh, because there's so much of that in here, right? They, there's actual things getting cited. There's a book within a book within here. The book itself is a book being written by somebody that we're reading. It's just like, it's just a lot of layers of that side of it. There's also like awkward California sex in this, which is great because we're unique Californians and how we do it. I didn't realize that that was unique. Well, I mean, uh, to be fair, I'm not gonna ask. Uh, uh, to be fair, it's more of a, um, a, a a California teenage boy thing. I don't know if it's specific to California, but there are some very awkward sex stuff. leading up to sex scenes. Stuff. Sexy, yeah. it's sexy yeah. stuff. It's I mean, there's not sex itself, but there's there's lots of like flirtation and and heavy petting. Yes. Uh, but like it it is awkward. It is so teenager. But it is very teenager. It it it's, it captures it really well. Like I can, I was sitting it there does. reading some of them and going like, "Well, that sounds familiar." Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going like, "Oh, this is making me squirm. Why do children do Why do teenagers do this?" Because teenagers like I remember being a, a a teenager in California <laughs> and like I kind of get it because, like, I had those like, experiences when I was a lot younger where, like, those are your first experiences of intimacy with somebody else. And it's awkward as fuck because <laughs> what do you know? What, you don't know what you're doing. 
I mean, there is a, a slight problem with that one of his sexual encounters is essentially a woman, like, uh, tricking him. Right, Melissa. Like, I, yeah, I don't necessarily appreciate. But what I did actually really appreciate is that up until that point, when you <laughs> find out that it was a betrayal, sex is treated really casually, like, from a sense of the parents know that the kids are having it, and that is, like, basically fine. Yeah, they're not terribly bothered. They're not bothered by it really at all. And they don't necessarily like promote it or anything. That would be weird. But uh, yeah, you're putting from, up like, signs. A, a teen <laughs> standpoint. Mom, come on! You know, like, no, that not, not in that sense. But just in the sense that sex is normalized in this story, which I really appreciated because it is a teen. St- this is basically a YA. Uh, yeah, essentially. I mean, like, it it wouldn't have been obviously marketed as such back in the day, but now it is very solidly in the YA category for me because it is about someone who is presumably about 17 years old, I think he says at one point. He's, some, he's around there, right? He hasn't quite hit what we would call legal adulthood, but he is almost effectively an adult in his community. Exactly. And that's, you know, now, solidly, the, the YA genre. That is basically what they're talking about. They're talking about 16 or 17-year-olds in high school, but obviously there's no high school in this, except that there is, because Tom is effectively the high school. And he hangs out with other people that are about his age. Uh, Mando, I think, is only 14. Right. Mando's quite young. Quite young. But I think he's also one of the youngest that is part of this group. Right. So it's a bunch of essentially high schoolers figuring out life in a post-apocalyptic environment. I mean, like, just to give you an impression, if you've never cracked this book before, like, here's the opening paragraph of this book. Just the, like, the setup. Oh, yeah. So I I love this. This opening bit is just absolutely phenomenal. So it wouldn't really be grave robbing, Nicolin was explaining. That's Steve. Just dig up a coffin and take the silver off the outside of it. Never open it at all. Buried again, nice and proper. Now what could be wrong with that? Those silver coffin handles are going to waste in the ground anyway. <laughs> and then it's all the kids going, what? No. <laughs> and then they go grave robbing to find. And then they go grave. It's so cute. And then they find out that uh, it's all plastic handles. <laughs> right. But Tom's response to that is not, oh, yeah, I was I was wrong. His response is, why do you think they painted them to look silver? You just found a poor guy's grave. <laughs> It should be our first clue at that moment should be our first clue that Tom is very unreliable about the truth. Very much so. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But anyway, I think, are we done with talking about this? We're done. We've got it. So, so I hope you guys all enjoyed this. Uh, We've been meaning to do this for months. Which is why we ended up doing it now in the midst of our ideal of trying to focus on by POC, specifically back and indigenous people of color. But we have been promising this to you. So we did it. Yep, we did it. And we will have one other thing that will eventually appear that is not part of our renewed focus. And that's just when we have a gap week, because there's an old episode that never ended up on the feed ever uh, for some reason. Uh, and so we'll eventually release that, but we won't tell you what it is. But otherwise, from this point on, our focus is going to be explicitly on by POC work, at least for several months. And then we may open a little bit to other marginal groups. Uh, but that's our primary focus at the moment. So 
yeah, I don't really know what else to say about that other than that's what we're doing. And so you should expect contact with the exception of Torture Cinema, which is probably not going to do that because we don't want to be cruel and jerks by making fun of people's movies. Yes. Uh, speaking of which, a poll will have gone up just a couple days ago, as in the day we're recording this because I'm super late. Like, but when this releases, it's up. Yes. When this releases, the poll is up. And you should join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Fanty, and then go vote for which movie we should watch live on Discord on Friday, the 19th? Yep. 19th, which is also happy Juneteenth, boop, boop. the end of slavery in the United States of America, finally, officially, took way too fucking long. Yep. Um, and then true. was restarted under Jim Crow and systemic racism and all that. Pull down those Confederate statues, though. Yeah. Get that shit uh, out of here. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that'll we'll be doing a Discord live watch of our Torture Cinema pick on Friday the 19th. So please join us 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time if you become a patron on our Patreon page. Just so people know on the Patreon, uh, $1 gets you basically access to our speculative dispatch and a couple of other perks and the polls. $3 gets you access to join us for the torture cinema. And other than that, you can find us at a number of places, skiffyfanny.com. You can also go at skiffyfanny on the Twitters. Please follow us there. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash skiffyfanty. We also have a, a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash skiffyfanty, although that's mostly just podcast stuff for the moment. And uh, you can find me at Sean Duke. And I am at Loop de Lou. Excellent. And as always, if you could write a review for us on iTunes, that would be really, 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 really great because we need m- many more of them. Pretty please. <laughs> I can't. I can't handle it, Chad. Nobody loves us. <laughs> no, nobody loves us. And I think you've just made this ending. Will you hold me? <laughs> there it is. Awkward ending and scene. Bye. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash skiffyinfanty. You can also find us on our website, skiffyinfanty.com, and on Twitter, at skiffyinfanty. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at skiffyinfanty at gmail.com. The music for this episode comes from Sphere by Creo. You can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org.